all my heart, I glorify the Lord. In the depths of who I am, I rejoice in God, my Savior. He has looked with favor on the low status of his servant. Look, from now on, everyone will consider me highly favored, because the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is his name. He shows mercy to everyone from one generation to the next who honors him as God. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered those with arrogant thoughts and proud inclinations and has, lift, and has pulled the powerful down from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty-handed. He has come to the aid of his servant Israel in remembering his mercy, just as he promised to our ancestors, to Abraham and Abraham's descendants forever. Amen. Thank you. Oh, yeah, you can take this with you if you'd like. And I'm going to read to you uh, from Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 18. So you have that context of Mary. And when Mary said those words, she uh, had been pregnant for, for some time. She had already said yes to the angel of God who said, I want to do this thing. And, you know, the, the interesting thing is Mary could have said no. She, she was given an option and she could have said, no, I, I don't want to do this, which is what I think most sane girls of her time would have done. Because for one thing, she was engaged but not yet married, which meant that uh, for her to become pregnant, she could have been stoned to death. And I don't know if you know how that works, but it is it's horrific and brutal. The, they would dig a hole, and still to this day, there there's stonings that happen. Um, they dig a hole, and they force, it's almost always a woman, into the hole, and then they cover the hole up where only her head is exposed, and then they just start throwing rocks. And so think about a 14-year-old girl having the courage to say yes to God in that situation. Maybe only a 14-year-old girl would have that kind, of, that kind of faith and those kinds of guts to do that. I don't know. But as I talk more about Mary's song in a few moments, you'll recognize how courageous she really was. So she's pregnant, she has the child, and then this happens. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in the territory of Judea, during the rule of King Herod, Magi came from the east to Jerusalem. They asked, where is the newborn king of the Jews? We've seen his star in the east, and we've come to honor him. When King Herod heard this, he was troubled, and everyone in Jerusalem was troubled with him. He gathered all the chief priests and the legal experts and asked them where the Christ was to be born. And they said, in Bethlehem, in Judea, for this is what the prophet wrote. You, Bethlehem, land of Judah, by no means are you least among the rulers of Judah, because from you will come one who governs, who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly called the Magi and found out from them the time when the star had first appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search carefully for the child. When you found him, report to me so that I too may go and honor him. When they heard the king, they went and look. The star they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stood over the place where the child was. 
When they saw the star, they were filled with joy. They entered the house and saw the child with Mary, his mother. Falling to their knees, they honored him. They opened their treasure chests and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Because they were warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they went back to their own country by another route. When the Magi had departed, an angel from the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Get up, take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod will soon search for the child in order to kill him. Joseph got up and during the night took the child and his mother to Egypt. He stayed there until Herod died, and this fulfilled what the Lord had spoken through the prophet, I have called my son out of Egypt. When Herod knew the Magi had fooled him, he grew angry. He sent soldiers to kill all the male children in Bethlehem and in all the surrounding territory who were two years old and younger, according to the time he had learned from the Magi. This fulfilled the words spoken through Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and much grieving. Rachel weeping for her children, and she did not want to be comforted, because they were no more. The word of God, for the people of God, thanks be to God. May God give us wisdom and courage for interpretation And may God give us wisdom and courage as we try to apply the truth of Scripture to our lives. Amen. What a story. I mean, this is the story, you know? I mean, this is the story we've always heard. We hear about the angel coming to Mary. We hear about Mary saying yes. We hear about the angel going to Joseph and Joseph being incredibly courageous himself and saying, yes, I'll, I'll, I'll father this child. I'll marry this mother. I'll, I'll do the thing that I'm supposed to do as a dad. Regardless of what happens to me because of it, I'll do it. And we hear of Mary going and seeing her cousin Elizabeth, and Elizabeth, who's pregnant with John the Baptist, which is a miraculous birth of its own, and John the Baptist within Elizabeth's womb leaps for joy, and that causes, that causes Elizabeth to have some sort of joy rise up within her, and then Mary sings out these words of a rebel song. And then a few years later, these magi show up and They lay down gifts at Jesus' feet, the the toddler Jesus. They lay down gifts at his feet. And and we can learn from them, right? We can learn that even when the highest of high or the lowest of low, being the shepherds, everyone is welcome to come to Jesus' feet and worship. And so there is this great message that we probably often heard about, like, Jesus is for everyone, and we should all go and worship at his feet. And that is absolutely true. But there's the adult version of the story also, which continues on, that this guy, Herod, who is called the king, but he's actually not the king. He's got a power trip going on because he actually serves underneath Caesar, who in ancient times would have been called the child of God, and they would have had a belief that he was born of a virgin, which would have been a miraculous birth of his own. Some magi from the east come to Herod, who also should have known the prophecy about where Jesus was born, by the way, where the Messiah was to be born, because he grew up around Judaism. 
and was half Jewish himself, and so he should have known these things, but he doesn't because he's so surrounded by his own power and his own ego, and he's wrapped up in himself, so he can't even think about God very often. And Herod inquires, where is this child to be born? And the prophets and the teachers and the scribes say to him what he should have learned when he was a small child in Bethlehem. Bread village. That's what Bethlehem means. Bread village. Jesus is often called the bread of life. So, in his jealousy and his lust for power and his fear of losing his own power, which, by the way, have you ever noticed how people with a lot of power do everything they can to keep that power? It's kind of a common thing in the world. We, as humans, are very, very unlikely to give up our power so that somebody else can have it. That's why it's kind of a big deal that women are being ordained in most denominations at this point. Because men are willing to give up some of their power. But before the United Methodist Church gets all happy and proud, they should recognize, we should recognize that we have way more white male bishops than we do female bishops, especially female bishops that aren't white. We just don't really want to give up our power. We're similar to Herod in that way. So Herod tells the Magi, hey, go find this child and then come back to me because I would love to go and worship him myself. Oddly enough, Herod probably could have just gone with them if he was genuine in what he wanted to do. But the Magi are wise and they figure out this isn't what he's really wanting to do. And so they go and they worship Jesus and they leave and they go a different way. And then Herod figures out what happens and he does the most horrific thing that we could imagine happening. He commits homicide, but it's infanticide. It's, it's, he murders every boy, child, two years old and younger because he is so afraid of losing his power. And scripture tells us, Matthew writes that it wasn't just Herod who was troubled, but it was everyone in Jerusalem. And I wonder about that. I wonder why everyone in Jerusalem was troubled. I wonder if it's because they already had Caesar and they already had Herod and now there was this new king who was being born, and were they concerned about a conflict that might happen between the three of them, or at least two of them, that they would get caught up in, and it would be more turmoil in their land? I wonder if that's why they were troubled, or maybe it was because they knew Herod. You know, Herod wanted people to mourn the day he died, and he wanted it to happen so badly that on the day he died, he had written it into law and had it be in order that over 300 people be taken into a stadium and crucified on the day he was born so that everyone would feel sad. So when Herod got troubled, everyone was troubled. I don't know. I don't know why everyone was troubled, but... It's probably for some reason like that. Maybe it's because people don't like change. 
We generally don't like for things to change. Even when it's uncomfortable, we're kind of, you know, what's the saying? The devil you know is better than the one you don't. And things were going to be changing and it became obvious to them. And so maybe they were troubled by that. Either way, Mary felt hopeless. And the people who were under Roman authority felt hopeless. They were overtaxed and they were burdened and, and they were beaten. And they, they could be walking down the road and a Roman soldier could come along and say, Here, carry my pack for a while. And just force them to do it. They could be walking down the road and a Roman soldier could just come and take their coat and leave with it. Sell it if they wanted. Things were about to change though. Mary, while she was living in a place of darkness and despair, had hope. She had seen the light. And she knew that the darkness cannot overcome the light. She knew that there was a reason for joy. And she knew that this new thing that was happening, this child that she was going to give birth to, was going to bring, bring peace on earth and goodwill to all people. So, out of her despair, she found a reason to hope. Let me read to you her words once again. Because they are rebellious at the minimum. So we call this Mary's praise song or Mary's song of praise. With all my heart, I glorify the Lord in the depths of who I am. I rejoice in God, my Savior. So if we stop there, we see like, oh yeah, that's really nice. Mary, Mary was like in this deep place of praise for God. But then she goes on, he has looked with favor on the low status of his servant. Notice she doesn't say he has looked with favor on me. It's on her low status because she was a female who was 14 and was pregnant and unwed. Three strikes, three intersections where she could be oppressed. Look, from now on though, everyone will consider me highly favored because the mighty one has done great things for me. That's strange to think about being pregnant out of wedlock in that culture as being a great thing. But she goes on, holy is his name. He shows mercy to everyone from generation, from one generation to the next who honors him as God. Now it gets crazy. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered those with arrogant thoughts and proud inclinations. He has pulled the powerful down from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. Now we might have an understanding of why Herod was so distraught. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty-handed. He has come to the aid of his servant Israel, remembering his mercy, just as he promised to our ancestors, to Abraham and Abraham's descendants forever. Do you hear the rebel song that she's singing? It's not a song of saying, like, the world is great and all is good. She's saying, no, this world is messed up. There are people in power who are holding on to their power for their own sake and not for the sake of other people. There are people, Jewish people, who are rulers who have forgotten that their job as a ruler is to serve those who they rule over. 
Just as God has told us and the prophets over and over and over in the Old Testament have said, stop doing the things you're doing and start living as servants for those who you are more powerful than. We should be hearing these words for ourselves, by the way. We are not the lowly. We live in the most powerful nation in the world. And we say that we are followers of Jesus Christ who gave his entire life for other people who were living in despair. That's who we are. We're not the lowly. But it's hard for us to imagine really what it's like to live in total despair. The closest we get, I think, is when we have someone who is really close to us who is sick and dying. And it seems as though there's nothing that we can do. Maybe, maybe it's when we read a book like Just Mercy written by Brian Stevenson, which you all should read, by the way. Write that down. Just Mercy, Brian Stevenson. Read it before the movie comes out. Where he spends his, he is spending his entire life with prisoners who have been imprisoned falsely, to rescue them from being imprisoned falsely. He's brought people out of death row like days before they were to be executed who were absolutely innocent. He's giving his life for other people. You, what's interesting at this time of the year is that uh, there are parts of the country, this isn't one of them, where billboards start popping up talking about how what this story is is false and it's a myth, that it's not real. And that's fine, right? Like, people can argue whatever they want to argue, but, but I think that Matthew and Mark and Luke and John would say, like, we weren't trying to write history the way that you all understand history in the year 2018. What we were trying to do is testify to the power of God in our lives and the things that we have seen God do and the things that we have heard about God doing in other people's lives. And they spent their life doing that. So I don't really care if this is a myth, if this is false, if this is real. I know the truth of the gospel in my own life and I intend to spend my whole life telling the story. Because it matters that much. This story that God cares about everyone from the Magi and even Herod all the way down to the shepherds and those who are involved in guerrilla warfare and everybody in between. God sees you and God cares. And the story of Herod kind of rubs me raw because I see myself in it. I see the worst that I could potentially ever be in that story. I'm not saying I would ever try to have a bunch of little three-year-olds executed, but I, I can see the humanity of Herod. Nobody wants to give up their power. It takes a divine act of God to cause us to get to that kind of place, but there is hope. There is always hope. And when we are in the depths of despair, we have to remember the sun is going to come up. That's one of the great things about wintertime. Like Friday night was the longest night of the year. But six months from now, we will have just completed the longest day of the year. Even when we're in the midst of the darkness, 
we know the light is coming because the darkness cannot overcome the light. Even when the trees are dormant, we know that there's memory and there's history and there's life within them that's going to blossom out because in our despair, we need those reminders and God has placed them all around us that it is not over. The sun rises because the sun has risen. I wonder... If we see the Easter story in this story of Herod and Jesus. Because in this one, Jesus escapes death. That's pretty awesome. An angel comes to Joseph and says, Joseph, get your child and get your wife and head for the hills of Egypt. And don't come back until you're told that Herod has died because it's going to get ugly around here. And so Jesus escapes death. But in a few months, we're going to remember, not only does Jesus escape death, but Jesus conquers death. And that is the hope that comes from despair in its ultimate form. Because here's the thing, sisters and brothers. This week, I can promise you this, this week, you are going to experience death of some sort. You're going to experience a memory of something from long ago that causes your soul to sink a little bit. You're going to remember some words that were spoken to you or words that you spoke to someone who caused a little bit of death in their life. You may have a conflict with someone this week. I mean, for heaven's sake, we're going to be sitting down with our families for dinner. (laughs) And it may just feel like a little bit of death. But Jesus didn't just escape death, he conquered it. We are people of the resurrection. We are people of Christmas time every single day because Jesus continues to come for us, to resurrect us, to offer us hope, to transform us. Because I will never in my life become perfect of my own power. I will continue to commit the same sins over and over and over. I can grip them, I can muscle them, I can will them, I can do everything within my own power to try to become a perfect human being, and it will never, ever happen. But what happens sometimes is we think that Christianity, this thing that we call our faith, is sin management, where we just grip as tight as we can, and we try to overcome with our own power the power of sin and death, and we can't do it. John Wesley used to write about this thing called sanctifying grace. Grace being the gift that God gives us that we don't deserve and we don't earn. It's just a gift that is given to us. And sanctifying being, meaning being made perfect in our love toward God. And John Wesley believed that all of us, through God's grace, will have a moment or a day or a couple of days or some of us even longer where we will be able to love God with complete perfection, but there is nothing that we can do to get there. It's only by the grace of God that that happens. And when we find those moments, we experience the trueness and the fullness of resurrection because the Spirit of God is continually transforming us. Does that make sense? It got really theological all of a sudden on you, and I can't see your faces very well, so I can't see if you're with me. 
We are in the transformation business. We believe that darkness is transformed by light. We believe that despair is overcome by hope. We believe that, that, that uh, fear is overcome by joy. We believe that, that violence is overcome by peace. Peace, love, hope, and joy, these four candles that used to mean like a countdown to Santa Claus coming for me, mean a whole lot more now than they ever did because I could care less if Santa Claus ever comes to see me again if these things would happen. If we would begin to live this way, peace, love, hope, and joy, not for ourselves, but for them. That we would have the wherewithal to allow the Spirit of God to transform us so that we would give up our power for other people. Thereby, I do honestly believe that we would experience the grace of God and the Spirit of God flooding into our lives like nobody's ever experienced it. But it's going to take somebody being courageous like Mary and saying, yes, whatever it is, God, that you want to do in my life, yes, I'll do it, regardless of what somebody's going to do to me because I'm willing to sacrifice my own life for the kingdom of God. Yes, I'll do that thing. Regardless of the way other people think about us, if we would give ourselves completely to Jesus, what would actually happen? I wonder, because I don't think I've ever done it. I just wonder what would happen. If even a room this size with this many people in here would completely hand ourselves over to Jesus, what would really happen? Because we all hand ourselves over a little bit. But if we were able to say, like, I, I give it up, like, every ounce of authority and power, uh, every ounce of privilege that I have, I give it up for other people. In the name of Jesus Christ, I give it up. I wonder what would happen. I think what would happen is that the kingdom of God would open up to us and people would start to beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. And I think that there would be truces on battle lines where they sing silent night to one another. And I think that we would be able to recognize the shepherd in all of us who's transformed because we really see what's happening around us like our eyes are open again for the first time. And I think that we would be like a prisoner who is set free, that's locked up by hate, but is set free by love. And I think the world would literally change, the entire world would literally change if a room this size the, had faith the size of a mustard seed. So this week, as we're opening our presence and we're celebrating the people around us, let's not forget that it's so much more. It's so much more. And let's pray for one another that we would have just an ounce of the courage that Mary had. A 14-year-old kid who was willing to risk it all because she believed that that child would change the world. No wonder Jesus was willing to sacrifice his life because his mom was willing to do the same thing. 
our children follow our example. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.